Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking. Will America's vaccine mandates work? At the start of June, President Joe Biden was optimistic the COVID-19 virus was in retreat. Vaccination rates were rising as the death toll tumbled. He promised Americans they'd be able to enjoy a summer of joy, get-togethers and celebrations free from the virus as he urged people to get the vaccine. And it's clearer than ever. The more people we get vaccinated, the more success we're going to have and our fight against this virus. But infection rates have risen sharply, fueled by the spread of the highly contagious Delta variant and flatlining vaccination take-up. Around 80 million Americans eligible for the jab have yet to have it. President Biden is, however, determined to shift the needle. Last week, he used his executive power to announce vaccine mandates for two-thirds of the workforce. Federal employees and contractors will need to be jabbed, as will workers in private sector firms with more than 100 employees. His plans are ambitious, unprecedented even, but will they work? My guest is Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, America's drug regulator from 2017 to 2019. During his two-year tenure at the FDA, he pushed for lower drug prices and he locked horns with the tobacco industry over e-cigarettes. Today, he's a board member of the drug company and vaccine maker Pfizer. He's also written a new book called Uncontrolled Spread about America's handling of the pandemic and how it could fend off any future repeat. Scott Gottlieb, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks for having me. And also joining us is Natasha Loda, our health policy editor. Welcome to you. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Last week, President Biden announced requirements for workers at large companies to be vaccinated. There's also a vaccine mandate for millions of federal government employees. What's your take on the new rules? Well, look, I think that we're, we're at 75% of adults over the age of 18 with at least one dose of vaccine in the U.S. right now. I think we're not going to get to 90%. 90%, we don't even achieve that with childhood immunizations. I think on our current course, we'll probably get to 80%. I think with these new mandates, if they get fully implemented, we'll do better than that. We'll probably get to 85%, maybe a little bit more. The question we need to ask from a policy standpoint is whether or not these mandates are going to be implemented in a time frame that actually allows us to achieve that, or whether or not they're going to create more acrimony, more division, and take something that is sort of furtively political and make it uh, more objectively political and create division lines where you see opposition forming. That could become uh, a headwind to getting more people vaccinated. The challenging part of the policy that was announced is the mandate on businesses with 100 more employers. That's going to require a complicated rulemaking process from OSHA, an agency that governs workplace safety rules. In a best case scenario, the mandate on businesses with 100 or more employees would probably be something that would be ready in time for the fall because you're going to need to put out implementing guidance on how businesses should implement it. And then you're going to need to give them a grace period to actually put it in place and come up with an enforcement mechanism. So I think this is really a fall 2022 type of intervention, certainly not in time for the Delta wave. 
One of the big questions now is whether booster shots will be necessary. President Biden says the government has bought enough for every vaccinated American. But he also says it'll be up to the FDA and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, to decide who should receive them and when to begin rolling them out. You're a Pfizer board member. As such, I imagine you might think booster shots are a good idea. Well, not as a Pfizer board member, but as someone who's looking at the literature, I think that there's going to be some portion of the population where boosters are going to make sense from a public health standpoint. I don't think the White House would have come out and said that they're going to be rolling out a booster campaign at some point in late September, and they sort of backed into a specific date, September 20th, if they didn't have consent from CDC and FDA and sort of an indication that those agencies were heading in that direction. The agencies still need to do a careful review of the data, and that's ultimately going to determine what we do. But I think that based on the data that I've seen, and it's in the public domain right now, I think that boosters for some portion of the population, particularly older individuals who were vaccinated a long time ago, Uh, People who are immunocompromised, who have chronic conditions that leave them immunocompromised or on immunosuppressant drugs, they've already authorized boosters for that population. But I think that we're probably likely to have some kind of authorization for boosters for people, let's say, over the age of 65 who were vaccinated more than six or eight months ago, because you do see some decline in protection, particularly protection against infection. But what you worry about is that if you see more breakthrough infections in that population, in a vulnerable population, eventually those breakthrough infections are going to translate into more severe disease. Natasha is our health policy expert. What's your take on on this balance between the third shot and vaccinating vulnerable people, healthcare workers in poorer countries? One of the questions I have is really about this long-term immunity. And, you know, Scott says, well, we're going to have breakthrough infections that will eventually lead to sort of more serious cases. I don't know if we're really there yet, but we'll see. And then the other thing just to say is that just because the mRNA vaccines do need boosting, that doesn't necessarily mean that other, other vaccines will do as well because they all work differently. Yeah, just to pick up on that point, I mean, there's two components of the immune system. One is the antibody response from the vaccines, and the other is the ability of the vaccines to stimulate memory B cells and T cells that protect against disease. And so what we're seeing is declining antibody levels in people who were vaccinated a long time ago. So they're more vulnerable to infection because your circulating antibodies are what protect you from getting infected in the first place. But once you get infected, then you're dependent upon those memory B cells and T cells to kick in and actually fight the infection and prevent you from developing symptomatic disease. But it takes a couple of days for those cells to regenerate, to kick in. So what happens is if you have declining levels of antibodies or you have a very contagious variant like Delta, it can overwhelm declining levels of antibodies. So you actually get infected. But then if the vaccine is doing its job and it's stimulated memory in those other components of immunity, those other cells then kick in in a couple of days and actually prevent you from getting very sick. I think the question that Natasha gets at is how how long is that immunity going to last? And that's the question we don't have an answer to. We can measure the antibodies. We know there's some decline in circulating antibodies over time after vaccination. What we can't measure very well are the memory B cells and T cells. And it could be that those cells remain programmed for a very long time after immunization. So the protection against symptomatic disease actually lingers much longer than the protection against infection. That's really the question. We're not going to be able to figure that out. Even as we authorize boosters for people, we're probably still not going to have an answer to that question. It's going to take time. So so this is such a technical question, isn't it? I mean, these are details of science. I mean, don't you worry that the FDA is getting a bit sidelined in all this and it's become quite political? 
I'm sympathetic to the Biden White House in terms of their announcement that they're going to roll out a campaign for boosters at some point this fall. And I think you know maybe the rhetorical mistake they made was backing into a specific date because it created a sort of perception that they were front running the regulatory process. But CDC and FDA were actively engaged in that announcement. The White House needed to have some date to back into because the logistics of actually standing up a booster campaign, it takes many weeks to get that implemented. And so if they didn't have at least an approximate time frame, they wouldn't be able to do the work of actually getting the logistics in place. And then what you would have is the specter of the vaccine, the booster gets authorized at some point, let's say it gets authorized on September 20th, just hypothetically. And then you take four weeks to actually roll out a campaign to vaccinate people in nursing homes. And that's exactly what happened under the Trump administration when the vaccines were authorized initially in mid-December. It took probably three or four weeks until we started to go into the nursing homes to actually start vaccinating because you had to get the consents in place. You had to get the logistics in place. So they hadn't planned for that. So I think what the Biden administration wants to do is once the boosters are authorized, be ready to start vaccinating right away, at least the most vulnerable populations in those congregate settings. Scott, let's turn to your new book. It's called Uncontrolled Spread. You give an insider's view of the failures across various government institutions in America as COVID-19 spread so rapidly. In essence, why do you think such a powerful, such a large and relatively rich country in, in global terms was so poorly prepared? Yeah, I don't think we had the right preparations in place really for a crisis of this magnitude. We had never looked at public health preparedness through the lens of national security preparations that we do for other kinds of catastrophic contingencies. Typically, public health crises that we had dealt with in the past were either geographically confined or when they were nationally distributed, they were with diseases that either weren't that threatening like H1N1 in 2009 or diseases that spread more slowly like like the Zika infection. So we had never dealt with a fast-moving contagion that was this lethal before. And I think that we had this misperception about what our capabilities were. And I think we had a misperception about what CDC's capabilities were in particular. You know, CDC was never going to be equipped to operationalize a response on this scale. They're a very retrospective agency in terms of how they collect and analyze information. They, they're not a prospective agency. They don't have sort of a national security mindset in terms of making information available in a real-time way to inform real-time decision-making in a crisis. CDC, unfortunately, didn't raise their hand and say, you know what, we really aren't equipped for this. We need to create some different model. Ultimately, the government did create a different model when it came to the development of the vaccines. They recognized that you couldn't just rely on the scientific agencies alone, that you needed an operational aspect to it. I get the feeling we're almost arguing about blame between acronyms, <laughs> FDA, CDC, state standing behind it in terms of, of who's supposed to be delivering what. Who bears most responsibility for these failures? Well, the political leadership. I mean, you know, the, these were decisions made by political leaders. And, and even if political leaders made the wrong decisions at the outset and foisted a lot of these obligations on CDC, there needed to be a recognition at some point that CDC didn't have this and that you needed to create some different model. I want to flip to Natasha, who, of course, covered all this in a lot of detail. Natasha, do you do you buy this uh, this kind of reasoning or does it ally with what you covered when you were doing this in real time? Well, I think the United States was a surprise to everyone, wasn't it? Because, you know, here's this enormously powerful country that surely is going to be able to manage this. But in fact, there were a sort of series of institutional failures at many levels. 
And there's all sorts of elements to it, the way it was a politically divisive issue, the way that you had both federal government pulling against state governments and um, also the sort of fragmented nature of their health system as well. Scott's raised some incredibly important issues about how this pandemic was handled and how we came to arrive at this point where 600,000 people, is it, that have lost their lives And I think there has to be a huge reckoning. And while we can all point to failures of leadership, I mean, I think we ignore the sort of institutional failures at our our peril. And that's certainly not something Scott's doing, but I think he's trying to raise awareness of the fact that there are these lacunae, if you like, in the country's uh, response. But I mean, listening to you, Scott, I was really, and how closely connected you've been to this pandemic. And I wonder, you know, is there anything you personally kind of think I wish I'd done that differently. You know, if only in that moment I had said something or done something differently. Yeah, you know, I was outspoken over the course of the pandemic. And quite frankly, I think what I was saying and doing was going to have limited impact. I mean, when you're on the outside opining, that's very different than being on the inside actually directing activity. The thing that I regretted the most was not being there, not being with my colleagues at FDA. I had left the agency probably nine months prior to the onset of the pandemic, I left in um, May of 2019. And if I had been there, I think that we would have reached out to the diagnostic manufacturers very early. If you go back and look at what I was writing about in January, it was about the need to reach out to the commercial manufacturers, the diagnostic test kit makers, and get them into the game very early. And I, I think I would have done that if I was there. Let's look at the role of conspiracy theory, fake news in this story, which, of course, has had tragic consequences. I wonder what you feel we've learned from it and who you think is broadly to blame. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we think that politicians and certain politicians in particular in leadership positions have been responsible for part of that. But it's a very important part of a response to a pandemic, isn't it? What's your thinking about it now and what have you learned? Well, I had seen this before where matters of public health had become matters of political debate. And I think watching people's sort of perspective on the science and on the facts break down along political fault lines, I think that's ultimately what became corrosive to the response. We didn't have a very clear truth standard. We didn't have experts who were universally respected and looked to to give advice. You know, we had people sort of dividing along political fault lines, what they were going to believe, what they were going to listen to, and who they were going to listen to. And I think that ultimately became corrosive to trying to galvanize the kind of collective action that was needed. There were very few things that we all agreed on. Natasha, was that inevitable that this would go along political fault lines? Or do you think that mistakes were made really not spotting how fast fake information would, would flow and how dominant it would become in certain groups? I think in America, political fault lines are always expected. But, you know, it is possible to lead and show leadership in a way that respects those fault lines and kind of tries to bring people together. And so you can choose to be the kind of leader who makes political mileage out of those fault lines, or you can choose to be a leader that perhaps falls foul of them from time to time, which perhaps Biden will do with his vaccine mandate. It's not that he's seeking to be politically divisive. It's just that perhaps he'll end up in that place by accident. And I think 
the former leadership was was one of the more problematic in that sense. And so I, I do think the sort of political divisiveness was a big issue in the US and, and masks needed to be handled much more deftly and with much more sensitivity. And they just weren't. And to this day, they remain hugely divisive for reasons that just are not necessary. Yeah, I get into a lot of detail in the book about the issue of masks, and I had been involved in that early debate. We had put out a recommendation in a report that we issued from the American Enterprise Institute for people to use masks as a way to reduce the risk of asymptomatic transmission. And the president had actually been asked about that report in public, and I had been work- talking to the the task force. They initially resisted implementing a mask recommendation because they were worried that if you told people that they they should wear masks when they go out, you were basically saying people should go out. But I think Natasha's exactly right. This was one of those issues where I think the president could have exerted more leadership to try to get collective action. Broadly speaking, just before we leave the lessons learned uh, part of our conversation, what do you think would need to change to make America better prepared for another pandemic whether it is of the same stripe as this or something completely different. I mean, what, fundamentally, what would you like to see different? We need an agency with the capacity to actually operationalize a national level of response to a public health crisis of this magnitude. I think we're going to need to think differently about how we subsidize you know, the development of manufacturing uh, for things like biologics, how we subsidize the build-out of the kind of capacity we need to do testing at ma- at a massive scale. We're going to need to spend some money to create some residual capacity that we keep hot. It we can't be something that we build in mothball, which was the old model of pandemic preparedness. And I think the third piece and the third and final piece that I would just say is that we need to think differently about these kinds of risks on a global scale. Our goal has to be not just to make the next pandemic less bad. We have to go in with a mindset that we're going to prevent the next pandemic. And one of the ways we're going to do that is by getting information much earlier about emerging infections in parts of the world where it has the potential to break out. We now know that there was information that could have been obtained inside China probably by mid-December and earlier than that. Doctors were sending off multiple samples for genomic sequencing by mid-December. That's actually, that's known publicly right now. That's electronic information that could have been intercepted. We certainly could have had more uh, awareness of what was going on in hospitals, if we had sources. All information that was obtainable in December in the hands of a competent political response, that could make a, a tremendous difference. That could have given us a head start on trying to develop diagnostic tests and pivoting towards the, the development, early development of countermeasures like vaccines. And so I think we're going to have to get our foreign intelligence agencies much more engaged in the public health mission overseas than they've been historically. Typically, this has been something left to CDC. Um, CDC didn't want the foreign intelligence agencies anywhere near information gathering, and the foreign intelligence agencies largely looked to CDC to, to handle this mission. We can't tolerate that kind of separation anymore. I think we're going to have to somehow find a way to incorporate intelligence agencies in a way that doesn't erode the public health mission. You know, The concern always is that if, if you have information gathering from foreign intelligence services, all the multilateral engagement and capacity building that we do is going to get eroded because other countries will become suspicious. I think there's a way to do both of these things. Other countries are doing it. We're just not, not doing it, I think, at the scale that we should have been. I want to look at the global picture a bit, and I, I'm curious as as to your view of establishing the origins of the coronavirus. That does still seem to be hitting great obstacles in terms of, of not getting sufficient cooperation from China. Uh, I'll ask Natasha, who of course has been probably on the same quest for for us at, at the Economist. Is this getting anywhere? 
Well, we've hit a roadblock, I'll say that. I think we can gather more information, but it's difficult without China's assistance. Um, I'd be interested to know what Scott thinks about what's possible without China's help. I think we can get closer to answering this question than we are right now, but not close enough to draw any definitive conclusions absent either finding the intermediate host and firmly establishing that this had a zoonotic source, which we haven't found yet after an exhaustive search, or having someone that is essentially a whistleblower inside China that would reveal information that this, in fact, came from the lab. And I think if it did come out of a lab, it's possible that the circle of people who are aware of that is very small at this point. And it's quite possible that China itself wasn't aware of what the origin was until it did its own investigation. So that information could have been held very tightly. A lot of the incremental data that's come out over time, I think, points more in the direction of a lab rather than an intermediate host. You know, early on, we, we, we thought this was a zoonotic origin because that's the most likely scenario. And also looking at the, the sequence itself, there wasn't anything highly unusual about the sequence of this virus that would sort of scream that this had to be engineered or humanized inside a lab. But over time, more information's come out around some of the activities around that lab. There's certainly circumstantial evidence that seems to indicate that it was a possibility. We've learned that they were doing experimentation on transgenic animals, which creates high-risk conditions. We've learned that they were doing it in BSL-2 labs, which, which they shouldn't have been doing. And we've also disproven the market as a source of spread. Um, even the Chinese now admit, the Chinese government admits that the market was not the initial source of spread. We know that there was spread happening much earlier. And we've also done an exhaustive search for the zoonotic source, and we haven't found it. And so all of those are pieces of evidence, circumstantial, that start tipping more in a direction of a lab origin. And then you have to layer onto that the Chinese government's behavior. The Chinese government certainly hasn't behaved like a government that really wants to get to the bottom of this and has nothing to hide. You know, I think there's nuance in all of this, and I think my nuance would be slightly different to Scott's nuance. But broadly speaking, I think we're still split on whether it's lab or natural origin. I'm not so sure we have lent so much more towards lab, but that's the only nuance. What what I do think is important is that people like Scott keep looking at this in a sort of rational way. And we've heard a lot of shrill voices in this debate. And I'm not sure that they're the ones I really want to keep hearing from. Let's turn to your career, Scott Gottlieb. You left your role as head of the FDA in 2019. Why? It was personal and it was a difficult decision. I had been in the job for two years. I was commuting between Washington and Connecticut. My family lived in Connecticut. I didn't move them at the outset of taking that job. Um, and I had young children and it just got very difficult. I think that the the decision that I made early on not to relocate my family, you know, once I did that, I had a time stamp on me. And I think that that was probably one of the un- under-recognized things that was going on in the Trump administration, that there was so much uncertainty around people's roles. And you can argue chaos. <laughs> you know, you didn't know how long you were going to be in a job and people were getting fired on Twitter that a lot of people didn't make long-term bets on these jobs. One of the controversies in your time at the FDA was your approach to e-cigarettes. The FDA allowed companies such as Juul to put them on the market for an initial period before the net public health benefits were proven to combat smoking. That led to a lot of American teenagers taking up vaping and becoming addicted to nicotine. Would you do things differently knowing what you know today about this? 
so the the history is a little bit different than that. The the e-cigarettes were on the market and they were deemed to be tobacco products subject to FDA regulation uh, in the deeming rule, which I actually finalized. The rule took about seven years for the Obama administration to craft. And when I took over the FDA, it hadn't been fully implemented. And so the first thing we did was finalize that, that deeming reg. Then the question became, how quickly could you implement the, the requirements on the e-cigarette manufacturers? And the reality was there were no implementing regulations. There were no guidance. We didn't have any rules of the road. At the time, youth use of e-cigarettes was coming down. We decided that we were going to try to put out a bold policy where we would regulate nicotine and combustible tobacco products. And then we would provide a pathway for non-combustible products to be an alternative. So if you can move currently addicted dull smokers to non-combustible products like nicotine replacement therapy or vaping, we saw the vaping products as one alternative, you could have a big public health impact. And that was the policy. That policy obviously changed once we got the National Youth Tobacco Survey data in, in the summertime, 2018, I remember the moment, that showed that there was a sharp increase in youth use of these products, uh, so that the, the declines had been completely reversed. And it was basically dual. It wasn't our policy that created that spike in youth use of, of e-cigarettes. Our policy wouldn't have impacted it. That was already happening. We just didn't know it. We didn't have enough awareness and enough market research. But Juul basically created a consumer category among children for their product. And I think they deliberately marketed their product in that direction, that there was marketing activity in that, in my view, was clearly targeted to uh, underage users of those products. Juul has said before that it is committed to combating underage use and in a bid to do so, it's taken measures like closing its Instagram account and suspending the sale of flavoured products. Natasha, you have a question, I think, about another product that's causing controversy. Earlier this summer, the FDA approved Adelheim, the new drug for Alzheimer's, um, which was at one level a great breakthrough but has actually been greeted with quite mixed reviews because there's actually very little evidence that it works. What did you think about this? What was your take? Was it the right decision? Yeah, I don't have a fully informed view on the data around this product. I think from a policy standpoint, I wasn't surprised by the decision because neurodegenerative disease division inside FDA had been signaling for a long time that they wanted to create a different construct for the uh, development and approval of products that could be used as an early intervention to stave off the effects of neurodegenerative diseases. And the way they were going to do that was allow products to come to market on the basis of surrogate measures of decline before clinical manifestations set in. Because what, what they viewed, and they put out a guidance in 2018 that articulated this, with a lot of these diseases, not just Alzheimer's, but you think of Parkinson's disease or ALS, by the time you have clinical manifestations of the disease, it may be the case that the disease process has progressed so far that you have a lot of irreversible damage. Now, the controversy, I think, was that in that 2018 guidance, they very clearly said, we don't think plaque is yet a valid surrogate to be sufficient for the um, accelerated approval of products for Alzheimer's. But what I sort of gleaned from the decision that they made from a policy standpoint is that in the intervening years between 2018 and 2021, they have changed their mind on that. They have new data, new, new thinking, new science around plaque formation as a surrogate measure of disease activity in Alzheimer's. And so they're willing to rely on it 
to some extent for regulatory purposes. I think to me, that was the big policy controversy that FDA had sort of stated this in 2018 and then made a decision that seemed to be in conflict. But my understanding, just reading the commentary, including yours and others, is that the scientific thinking around that has evolved over the intervening time. Our time is nearly up, but there is something I just can't leave without asking you. And I know that you've been very involved in debates, which got heated, so to speak, about the safe temperature at which to cook and consume a steak. So I was thinking of having a medium rare one with some chips, as we would say in the UK, fries, as you might say, in the evening today. And I read that you like yours cooked to 160 degrees. Gosh, if, if you're at home and nobody's watching... Which, how would you really cook it? There's an important nuance here. I cook chopped meat thoroughly through and through. If you're cooking a steak, I think you can cook it medium rare and still be safe. You know, what you're worried about is translocation of bacteria from the surface of the meat into the meat center. And so when you mix chopped meat, you're mixing the exterior of the meat to the interior of the hamburger. When you cook a steak... What you really want to do is make sure the exterior surface is well cooked. Now, you do worry about um, needle tenderization. So when when they prepare steaks, they they do certain things in the process that could cause the translocation of bacteria from the surface into the center, but not as much. And so the risk is reduced with a whole steak versus chopped meat. So chopped meat, I cook through and through. Steaks, I cook medium rare. What about you, Natasha? How much uh, attention do you give translocation of bacteria risk when you're making your evening supper? Absolutely none at all. I I don't actually generally eat red meat at all. (laughs) Sainthood and safety is yours. But I think I now understand the great meat cooking debate rather better, having heard Scott Gottlieb's reasoning behind it. Thank you very much indeed for joining us and that very wide-ranging, fascinating conversation today. Scott Gottlieb, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And my thanks as well to Natasha Loder, our health policy expert, for joining us today. And as always, I would love to know what you think. Do you ponder the translocation of bacteria when cooking a steak? After this encounter, I do now. And as Dr Gottlieb looks to how America can handle any future pandemic, how has this one changed the way you look at health, public health? And what will you do differently in future? Write to us, podcast at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. And for more of our excellent coverage of the coronavirus pandemic, do head over to our website. Our data team have been tracking global vaccination rates. You'll also find a fascinating article on how COVID has refashioned corporate dress codes. You've probably got views on that too. An Economist subscription goes with any outfit, so why not become a subscriber today? For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers were Hannah Marino, Alicia Burrell and Amika Shortino-Nolan. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs> 